0: We're going to go into a time of preaching now, and so uh, we're going to be in the Book of Psalms, continuing our, our summer series we've named Summer Psalms. And so if you guys have a Bible, I encourage you guys to turn to Psalm 6. Uh, or if you have a device, you can, you can swipe there. Um, that's where we're going to be where we're going to be this morning. So there are a number of religious books in this world. Uh, and those religious books are springing out of various faith backgrounds. Um, but the Bible is unique in in many ways, but in one of the ways that it's unique is how its authors talk to God and how they talk about God as well. And so the depiction of God in many faiths is one of fear, uh, one of not offending that God, uh, just uh, writers may be showing concern that that God, if he is offended, if he, if he set off, that that he's going to fly off the hook at some point. But the Bible is very different. The Bible finds its authors asking God hard questions, passionately voicing complaints against God, making pleas, boldly going where other faith backgrounds are not allowed to go. And, and we get a flavor of this today as we're looking at Psalm 6. David, King David, is in the midst of a dire circumstance. It's not immediately clear what he is facing in his life. It may be a situation brought about by his own sin, but we also find David referencing in this psalm his foes and his enemies. Ultimately, though, what we find David doing is coming hard at God asking God that he would bring about a relenting of his situation. So let's read this psalm together, uh, and then we'll work through it. Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes depart from me all you workers of evil for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping the Lord has heard my plea the Lord accepts my prayer all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment let's pray God thank you for this time that we have to look at your word as we look at it I pray that Uh, it's not just kind of entertainment, it's not just us parsing it out, I pray that it's not just us reading your word, but I pray that this time your word would read us, that it would convict our hearts, it would encourage our hearts, it would do miraculous work in us, work that only you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit, and so I plead with you, God, As David pleads with you in this psalm, I plead with you and ask that you would do a work in us that we cannot do in and of ourselves, a work that we cannot manufacture through our hard work or through our discipline. So God, give us faith. Help us to trust you. Help us to see you for who you are as you reveal yourself in these verses even through your author, David. So God, come and meet us Uh, Wherever we're at, uh, locationally, geographically, or just spiritually and emotionally, I ask that you would come and meet us and do a work in our hearts. In your great name I pray, amen. Okay, I want to begin what we're doing here this morning by noting a progression that happens within this psalm. Okay, so in verses 1 through 4, what we find David doing is he's utilizing the phrase, O Lord. Five different times. So, so David is downtrodden here. He, he feels troubled. He, he needs help and he feels acute, acutely his need for help. And so we find him crying out to God in pursuit of deliverance. He, he's seeking salvation from God. And, and then if we skip ahead to verses 8 through 10, we now find David making three statements about the Lord. David is no longer pleading for the help of the Lord, but he is now making assertions about the Lord, about what the Lord will do. So it's clear here that David feels heard. He feels that God has heard his prayer. He's experienced a sense of acceptance from God. And David even goes so far as to start making demands of the same people who previously had greatly troubled his soul. So we see this progression from verse 1 to verse 10. So what happened? What happened in David? Did David's circumstances change? So now he's gained some previously lacking confidence in himself, and that's why he's able to end the psalm in this way, and that, that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's do that. We immediately gain some context in verses one and two, as to what's driving David down into despair. Okay, so we read here, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me. So so if we're reading this honestly, it very much sounds like David is someone who has sinned against God. He's likely done something that he knows will anger God and cause God to want to pour out wrath upon God. It appears that David almost expects some type of discipline to be handed down to him based on what he's done. Now, I think it's important for us to understand here, because when we read this, we might read it, David saying he doesn't want any discipline at all. But I think what David is saying here is not that he's opposed to discipline, that he's opposed to rebuke, because it sounds like he knows he deserves it. But he doesn't want discipline. He doesn't want rebuke to happen in the sight of God's wrath. Because David knows that if God is going to pour out his wrath upon him, that will not end well. It most likely will end in death. So he appears to be asking here for a gracious rebuke, a gracious discipline from God. And if we fast forward to the in the into the New Testament, we get a picture of God as a loving father who disciplines his children. We find this in the New Testament book of Hebrews. We talked about this a number of months ago when we were going through the book of Hebrews. We read there, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later that discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. God's discipline Produces peace in us. It produces righteousness in us. It ultimately is intended to produce faith in us. So it is a loving act of God to discipline us. It's communicating, when God disciplines us, it's communicating a familial relationship, which is what anyone should desire with God. A loving father will patiently, kindly discipline his children. Now, now, anyone who's has children or has disciplined children at some point in their lives will probably be convicted by the picture that we get of God here, because in our flesh, we have disciplined our own children sinfully, wrongly, impatiently. Furthermore, what we see In Jesus, when we look at Jesus in the New Testament, is we see God himself being rebuked for us. Jesus felt the silence of his father in the midst of his suffering on the cross. Jesus felt the full fury of God's wrath poured out on him as he took our discipline upon himself. And this discipline ended in death. This is the ultimate form of grace that David is alluding to here. The gospel beforehand, we can say, this is where we find healing in the midst of our trouble. Jesus on the cross paying the price for our sins. What David maybe is fearful here of in Psalm 6 is something that no Christian needs to fear ever. Or even wonder about if God is going to exact revenge upon us. Or when we sin, if he's going to show us. You no, know, he will discipline us in his love. He will discipline his children. Because he knows that sin ultimately seeks to destroy us. But he will not pour out his wrath upon us. So David's, O oh Lord, please at the beginning of this psalm are then followed by soul-bearing expressions of anguish in verses six and seven. And my thought is that every single one of us can empathize or sympathize or resonate with what David is saying. Maybe not to the same degree, but we can understand the pleas that he is making, the anguish that he is feeling. So David describes his situation in pretty graphic terms. Okay, he is weary because he has been moaning in agony. We read that his bed is flooded with tears. I almost wonder if this is like a poor man's waterbed, right? Like, like you're crying so much that you're basically creating a waterbed. And then I thought, are waterbeds even a thing still? I mean, back in the 80s, I remember that that being a thing, but I don't I don't know anybody who has a waterbed. Of course, I don't know what most people have for their beds either. But are they even a thing anymore? I'm, I'm not even sure if they are. But, but David says his couch is drenched from weeping. It's like this dude cannot stop crying. He, he never runs out of tears. His eyes are wasting away because of the grief that he feels. He is growing weak because of his many foes, because of all the opposition that he is feeling around him. So this would appear to go beyond just simply a pity party that David is throwing for himself. David is in a dark place, and he does not seem to care how ridiculous he might look to others or sound to others. His pain is deep Seemingly inescapable. And so I I know that every one of us has felt things like this. Deep pain. Inescapable sorrow. And if we haven't felt that, the reality is we probably just haven't lived long enough. We will at some point feel that in this world. The presence of sin and evil in this world means we will feel acutely the reality of suffering we will feel threatened, we will feel scared, we will feel uncertainty. Whether we we view that as coming from God or coming from others or circumstances outside of ourselves, we'll feel that. And when we feel that, our tendency for most of us will be to hide what we feel, to not let others see the trembling that's going on in our hearts. Now, some of us may read what David is writing here and just kind of roll our eyes. We might think, man, this dude's just being dramatic, or he just wants attention. Some of us might think he needs to toughen up here. Maybe. Maybe he does. But David was a young boy who went and fought a giant and slayed the giant when the whole army of his nation was unwilling to go and fight that giant. David was someone who had been in battle many times. David was someone who was sought to be killed by the previous king of Israel. David was someone who had a family who was a complete mess. David was someone who bore the weight of responsibility for the whole of a nation as the king of it. Maybe David wasn't dramatic In what's going on here. Maybe he was reckoning his sin in a way that we should reckon with our own sin. Maybe we should be more willing to share what's lying deep in our hearts. Maybe we're restricting our own growth and the growth of other people as well by not sharing what's going on in our lives. There's a number of verses in the New Testament where Christians are instructed to weep with those who are weeping and to mourn with those who are mourning. It would be good for us to enter into this arena of vulnerability that we see being demonstrated by David in these verses. It'd be good for us to give others the opportunity to weep with us, to mourn with us, to be the church with us as Jesus has Commanded us to do. And we see an example in Jesus as well. Jesus, upon hearing of the death of a good friend of his, wept. He cried over his death. On the night of Jesus' arrest, he felt such agony that he began to sweat his own blood. Jesus didn't hide the fact that he felt things deeply, He went into the temple court and he overturned tables because he hated what was going on there. And him showing his emotion, showing his vulnerability didn't make him less manly. It didn't make him less God in any way. And so when we look at Jesus and we see him demonstrating this in his own life, how much more do we need the opportunity to reveal what's going on in our heart of hearts, what we're feeling, what we're experiencing, what we're thinking. Now, our tendency might be to just kind of clam it all up, to push it down, to not reveal it. We might also have a tendency in the midst of our agony um, to to do anything that we can to change our situation, to to fix whatever it is that's causing this reality, that's causing us to be greatly troubled and this is why David's example here is so helpful for us we need his modeling his encouragement in this we need to be corrected of the fact of how we try and trust in ourselves to change a situation to to fix something on our own in our efforts to make ourselves presentable before we will come to God David provides us an example that is going to push us to come to God messy. We don't clean ourselves up before we come to God. We come to God so that he might clean us up. And when we feel ready, when we feel like we've uh, created enough courage in our hearts that we're able to then come to God, we've cleaned ourselves up, we, then, then we're doing what we feel, what good Christians do. When we're loving God in an acceptable way, that, that's how many of us will then approach him or feel like we then can approach him. But the Bible pushes against this at every turn. So I want to jump back to verse four here to see the, God, the gospel principle of God's initiating love for us. In this verse, we read David saying, Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. So I want us to see how David is not emphasizing his love for God. He's not coming to God and say, saying, Look at the ways in which I've loved you. Look at the sacrifices I've offered to you. Look at my track record. That's not what he's saying at all here. Because that's not the key. Our love for God is not the point. Because our love for God isn't constant. It changes. It's, a sure th- it's not a sure thing. And so what we find David doing, and what we can learn from David here, is that he's staking his claim on God's love. God's steadfast, unchanging, always and forever love for him. And, and we could even go back to verse two where it talks about God's gracious. David saying, be gracious to me. This is what we pin our hopes on. This is all that we have. This is the heart of the gospel. It's all dependent on God. We throw ourselves at his feet. And David has been brought to a place where he knows fully that he cannot deliver himself. And so we find him here, In Psalm 6, crying out to God, deliver my life. Deliver me because I cannot do it on my own. That is where all of us should yearn to be. This should be the cry of our lives, of our hearts. God, deliver me. When we wake up in the morning... We should feel this strongly. Where we don't feel this strong, we should plead with God, help me to understand, I need your deliverance today. I can't do it on my own. I'm not enough. I need you. And this is the grace of weariness. This is where we find grace amidst weariness. Weariness reminds us of our finiteness. It's a mirror that reflects to us a reminder that our spiritual capacity never exceeds what we feel in our fatigue. So at those moments when we feel weakest or the most weary, we, we can, our, our spiritual capacity to save ourselves, to do something for God, never goes beyond that. But we do have one who loves We do have one who is spiritually capable and who will act for our good according to his love. And in this, we are freed from the responsibility of trying to love God acceptably. You ever find yourself in that spot, trying to to well up love in such a way that God will approve of it? We're able to simply receive God's love of us, to revel in his kindness, and then to respond in faith. No matter how big or small that faith might be, we simply respond in faith to how God has loved us. And this is intended to be unbelievably good news to us. God's steadfast love is the only way in which we find deliverance in our lives. Okay, let's circle back to the transformation or the change that I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon that, that happened in David in this psalm as he moves from being greatly troubled to confident at the end. What's happened in him? Has, has his circumstances changed? Has he defeated his enemies First of all, it's clear that David believes God has heard him, right? I mentioned this at the beginning. He believes that God has heard what he said. It says, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. So, he feels heard. He feels cared for by God. Now, our tendency in our lives, is to think this must be the the case because the circumstances in David's life has changed or have changed. But I think if we look at verses 8 through 10 here, we're going to find that this does not seem to be the case at all. Verse 8, we read, depart from me, all you workers of evil. This doesn't sound like something that's already occurred in David's life. It sounds like a command that he is speaking. He wants this to happen, but they still seem to be in his presence. They still still seem to be opposing him in some ways. And then verse 10, my enemies shall turn back. They will be put to shame. This appears to be something that is not a current reality for David. David believes that this will come to pass, but it has not yet happened. So this is not an instance in which David is putting trust in his circumstances. He's believing that God will bring something about. He's seeing God for who he is. He's trusting that God will do something in him, around him, that he's not yet able to see right now. And so, one of the reasons I love Psalm 6 is because there's not ultimate resolution. There is in belief, but it's not in the circumstances. And this speaks to us, right? Many days, we feel like we want something different. We need something different. And what we need is we need oftentimes a change in our belief. We need to see God for who he has revealed himself to be. In the midst of David's grieving and his pleading, David was simultaneously reminding himself of who God is. He's a believer, or or God is a deliverer. He is gracious. He is love. In fact, he is so loving that he will discipline those he loves so as to seek what is best for them. God is a healer. God is the author and the sustainer of life. God listens. He is a God who knows intimately the reality of a suffering. He understands what it's like to have enemies, to be hated, to face the threat of death. So much of our fears that we feel in life, so so much of our impatience, so much of our anger stems from the fact that we don't know God as he's revealed himself to be. Or maybe we do, but we forget how God, who God has revealed himself to be. I want to give you a, a practical example from my own life. Uh, from just a couple of days ago. Friday morning, I came down, got out of bed, came down. I usually stretch for quite a while in the morning. And so I, I was stretching out. My son, Tyler, came down and uh, we we chatted just briefly. And, and then he started doing some reading on his own. And after about 40 minutes, Casey came down and and uh, we were going to work out together. And so Casey engaged in conversation with Tyler for a few minutes and just, she was asking about him about something and Tyler gave her an answer and, and she didn't really understand uh, what Tyler was saying. And so Tyler reiterated it two or three more times trying to explain it, uh, but Casey wasn't understanding what he was saying. I was. And so my way of resolving this was to curtly restate what Tyler was already saying I was frustrated I was angry and and I just I took it out on Casey Casey made it really clear that that this didn't feel good and so we we jumped into our workout we didn't resolve it before the workout started and throughout the workout I was thinking about my sin of impatience and and how it was. Taken out on Casey. I was also thinking about how God was patient and is patient with me. Even in the midst of my impatience, God is patient with me. And it was really convicting. We got to the end of our workout, and I apologized to Casey for how I'd hurt her for my impatience, for my sin, she forgave me and and then she did uh what's really hard to do in those moments she showed patience with the impatient one and she asked how can i help you with this and and you need to know that anger has been something i've been wrestling through recently that this is, this wasn't an isolated incident it keeps popping up and we're having conversations about this and so I've I've been quick to anger be angry on numerous occasions recently and and here is my wife modeling patience to someone who's not showing it to her someone who's called to be patient with her and she's again showing me patience amidst my impatience so my issue in all of this it isn't, I, I just need to be more patient. I, it, the answer to this is not me just, Kevin, be more patient next time. Because that won't last. That, that's not going to resolve the situation. Because two hours later, or two days later, or two weeks later, the impatience is just going to come out again. My issue in all of this is that I'm forgetting God's patience with me. I'm forgetting the gospel. I'm not believing the gospel. I'm not remembering how I've been treated by God in the midst of my sin. And that's the supernatural, that's the miraculous work that needs to happen in my heart. This is the only way that my heart will soften. This is the only way that my heart will be changed is to understand who God is and what he has done for me. And this is true for all of us. We need to see God as he is. We need to believe it, embrace it, let it sink deep into our being. So three points of gospel application for us this morning. First of all, We need to remember who God is, and we need to remember who our foes are. We need reminders of the greatness of God, his power, the fact that he is far beyond us, and yet he comes to us. He cares deeply about the intricacies of our lives, the small things of our lives. We also need reminders of the goodness of God. the the many small things in the everyday. He cares about us. Whatever we bring to him, he cares about what's going on, and he is good to us. And so we need to be reminded of, of the greatness of God and his power, and we also need to be reminded of our foes and their insufficiency, that they're not enough. And, and yeah, many times we make them out to be something bigger than they are. They look big. But we need to see them in light of who God is. What will result is a heightened understanding of the bigness of God and the smallness of everything and everyone else. We'll affirm what John says in, in John 3.30. Jesus must increase, but I must Decrease. This is also why we are persistent in gospel centeredness. We don't need some heightened form of discipline. We don't need to, like, a pep talk. What we need to do is to continually go back to the gospel. This is the only place we find good news. This is the only place we can go where our hearts will be changed. Jesus must increase, and we must decrease. And the way by which this happens is living gospel-centered lives where we're continually going back to the gospel, seeing Jesus for who he is, and seeing everything else for what it is in light of Jesus. Secondly, let your weariness be a source of encouragement I know that the tendency in all of us is that we will resent our weariness. For those who love God, God promises to work, all, work good in all things, to use all things for our good. And what good may come from weariness? A deepened trust in Jesus. A relinquishing of hope in things that actually weary us. gaining a greater sense of what we are and we are not capable of. So I want to encourage us to embrace our weariness, not think we just have to live our whole lives in the midst of weariness, but to let God use it, uh, redeem it in ways that is for our good. It's helping to tell the gospel story. We cannot save ourselves. We must look outside of ourselves. We must go to Jesus. And lastly, then to go to God. Don't avoid God. Don't hide from Him. Don't think you can't go to Him. Run to Him with anything. Your questions, your complaints, your anger, your longings, your joy, whatever it might be. I think one of the things that we see in David in psalm 6 is we see someone who is grieving who is full of sorrow but when we fast forward to the new testament what we learn is that it is good to grieve but it's not good to grieve as one who has no hope the gospel gives us hope in the midst of anything and everything we find ourselves in and so i want to encourage you guys grieve grieve well grieve vulnerably be sorrowful, but not as one who has no hope, because we trust in the hope of the world.